Audio Parfait. I, I get the music stuck in my head. I listen to it more than you do. Yeah. Yeah. It's very poppy. It is very poppy. Well, you're the one who picked it out. I did pick it out. I but... gave you many options, and that's the one you went with, and I was okay with it. So. Just okay? Yeah. Well, I wasn't going to give you options that I didn't like. I gave you the options that I liked, and then I let, let, let you be the deciding factor on what we do. I, I, okay. I'm good with all these. So it's whatever one you want, and then you picked it out, and I, I'm good with it. Okay. Okay? okay. kind of how we live our lives. I go, I want any of this. And you say, we'll do that one. I say, okay. Okay. And I'm good to go. Uh, this one should be a little easier for you. I won't say anal warts near as many times <laughs> in this episode as that I said last time. In fact, I won't say anal warts in this episode at all. But you've I already prom- said it twice. No, I promise you. No way, no warts in this show. Surprise. No. 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 Okay. Well, welcome back to Open Ain't a a... warts. <laughs> Motherfucker. Welcome back to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Stephanie and... I'm Kevin. Yeah, he's Kevin. Yeah. And we are on episode four of William S. Burroughs. So, when we last left Bill, we just moved back to Tangier. Got Ian Somerville and Mikey Portman with him, and they're getting ready for Billy Jr. So the and and we we covered it a little bit about how would you feel if guy had just abandoned you after killing your mother? I mean, probably not great. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Well, uh, so Burroughs claimed it was Billy's idea for one, that he wanted to get to know his father. So we're it's not even 100% sure how much Bill wanted this in the first place. He claimed that it was Billy's idea. Burroughs hadn't seen Billy since October of 1954 when he was seven. Uh, a few days after they moved in, Burroughs met Billy's plane in Libsen. Lip, yeah, Libsen. I pronounced that right. Look at me. And 16-year-old Billy now found himself in the Parade Bar, the only place that served a decent hamburger. So when you want to go get American food, this was the only place to really go do it. And he was in- introduced to Mikey Portman. Michael said, quote, I know I'm old, but I really haven't lost my figure, dear. You know, half the old tangerines knew you were coming and wondered what it, you would look like. Well, baby, I mean... You ever want to get your nuts blowed? Oh, God. To a 16-year-old kid. Yeah, on his first meeting of his dad since he was seven. In nine years. Remember, Mikey doesn't give a shit. He's completely oblivious to pretty much everybody else. Well, yeah, he comes from money and he's spoiled and doesn't give a shit. Yeah, well, and on top of that, Bill had made no sleeping arrangements for Billy. They toured the house using flashlight because the electricity was out. 
Ian eventually arrived and fixed the electricity supply by going outside and banging on the pole that carried the power line. It's one of those, I mean, I guess it's just one of those neighborhoods. The next morning, Billy awoke to find Ian sitting on his bed, gazing at him like a loving mother. Billy recalled, quote, we talked for a few minutes, and then he took my hand, gently, ever so gently, and tried to draw it to his groin. Oh, my gosh. Ian didn't take the rejection badly, and they became friends. That evening, when Bill, Ian, and Mikey fired up their long kiff pipes with clay bowls, kiff is just another form of cannabis, Billy asked if he could try some. They said no, but the next day, Bill asked Ian to take Billy into town to let him pick out a pipe. So, getting him started young. Oh, my gosh. Billy found Bill's kiff too harsh on the throat for his liking, so Bill gave him some mahjong instead. They appeared to have gotten off at a reasonably good start. The first problem arose, though, when Bill took Billy to enroll him in an American school. He had wanted to come to Tangier to get to know his father. The idea of going to school going to school hadn't entered into his calculations. Back in Palm Beach, he had gone from one school to another in a series of fiascos, attending, not liking, quitting, moving to another, off and on. And again, Bill's parents paying for all of it. So, you can imagine they were probably not too heartbroken to see him go. Right. As hard, harsh as that it's to say, that it's a, their grandson. I mean, he's just, he's pulling the same shit that Bill pulled. Give me money, give me money, give me money. And then they're just flushing it down the toilet. They raised him the same way they raised their son. Yeah. So it's their fault. Well, it's their fault and it's Bill's fault. Because he abandoned him. Because it's not their responsibility. It's not, but I mean, they're so, raising him, so... They're, they're raising him, and they're they're fucking up the same way they fucked up with Bill, but at the end of the day, it's Bill's fault because it's his kid, and he's not taking any type of responsibility for him. Nature versus nurture. Yeah. Uh, the American school was not far away from the house, and there was a bus, so Billy went for three days. He was surly and uncooperative. Then he quit, telling Bull it was just too much trouble. Well, what do you do if kids come downstairs and say, nah, it's too much trouble? Tough shit. You're going to school. Grab them by the back of the neck and throw them out the fucking door? Well, no, not to that extreme, but... I mean, not on their head, but just push them out no. the door? So you can walk, go to school. We don't live that far from the school. I can walk. No, I, I'll drive them, but your ass is going to school. Yeah. I need my me time while you're at school. That's true. Get the mimosas ready. Well, I, I don't even need a mimosa. I need my fucking naps. <laughs> well, thanks to Billy, we have a description of his father's writing of Nova Express. Burroughs would spend hours at a time smoking kiff while sitting in an organ acclimator. Again, like I said, they're going to be everywhere he goes. In their upstairs hallway, then he'd suddenly rush out and begin pounding the keys of his typewriter as soon as the sun began to set, Burroughs would go to the roof, watch the colors of the sky change. He would stand there, his mouth partly open, transfixed on his favorite spot. Absolutely motionless, a cigarette staining the fingers of his right hand, which he would drop when it would burn him. Only when it was completely dark, the great band of the Milky Way competed with the intense moonlight to light up the deep midnight blue sky, did he make another sudden dash to the typewriter. 
They avoided the roof by day because rooftops were traditionally the women's province where they did their washing and gossiping. Bill made the mistake, Billy made the mistake of going there one day and was seen from other roofs. The Arabs threw little pieces of mud at their front door for the next week. The beginning of a campaign of harassment that intensified after Billy left. The, the people there are going to get very aggressive towards the residents of the house. Yeah, they're living laissez-faire, you know, just free and whatever. They don't want to follow the local customs and rules, and they fuck everything up. I mean, you pretty much, they're they're outsiders, and they're not, they're not really welcome where they are. It's not all of Tangier that's like that. It's this specific neighborhood where they're at. I would say it's not that they're welcome. It's that they're not respecting the area that they're in. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's probably a good way to put it. Burroughs made no effort to feed Billy, who was used to regular meals at his grandmother's table. Billy wrote, quote, These were pleasant times, but I couldn't make it. I was too young and found it difficult to get involved. Uh, sometimes when Billy would get some extra money, he'd go down to like the market, and there's a story about him buying a roasted chicken and bringing it back, and the second he walks in the door, everybody just kind of land bashes him and rips the chicken out of his hands. They eat it. He barely gets anything to eat. And then Burroughs takes the bones and makes a soup with it. Anytime Billy had food, he kind of had to eat it before he could go home or else they just steal it from him. Yeah, that's kind of... Yeah. Well, after six months in Tangier, Billy returned to Florida in January 1964. Nothing had been resolved between him and his father. Billy admired his father and desperately wanted his approval, but he was also but he also blamed him for the death of his mother for separating him from his half-sister, and most of all, for neglecting him. There's some other stories in there I don't really get into about how Billy Billy was really depressed while he was there. He started dressing in all black and hanging out with some of the neighborhood kids. Um, in that, you know, you see the old movies from the, from the 60s and everybody's wearing like black turtlenecks and they're in the poetry stuff, snapping their fingers. It was kind of one of those types of So he of became things. an emo kid? Uh, an emo kid for the 60s. Okay. So it's different. But you know, people were really worried. You know, they were worried about him because he's always depressed. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't really like it there all that much. And Bill was super worried that he was going to bring kids over to the house who were going to go tell the authorities about all the drug use that was being going on. Like he would give, he gave them the, the kiff pipe and the bowls and the mahjong. And Billy would intentionally leave the shit just laying around the house after he specifically told him not to because he subconsciously wanted Bill to get caught. Hmm. Yeah. He admired his dad, but he wanted his dad to pay for what he had done. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's your father still. And he, he he's a genius when it comes to, like, writing and being creative, but he's a shit person. So you admire him, you want his approval because he's your dad, but you still you want him to pay for some of the shit that he's done. Uh, uh, Bill took Billy to the airport for his flight to the States and warned him, quote, Billy, for God's sakes, don't try to take anything in with you. Billy told him he didn't have anything, but he bought some Mahjong right there in the airport. As soon as he got to the States, he was taken to the side, and they found it right away. 
But the custom officer told him, quote, I'm too young to spend the night in jail. I don't think this is going to amount to much. However, from then on, his name was on their books. And he was wrong. It would amount to much. Billy's, Billy's life is a pretty tragic one. It's, he tries to follow in his father's footsteps way too much. I mean, you got to remember he was born an addict. His mother was high on benzedrine the entire time she was pregnant. Yeah. And she drank like a fucking fish. So he was born an addict. So he, he didn't really have much of a choice. All right. Well, Bill was worried about money. Cost of the house was $15 a month, which was outrageous for them. A Moroccan would have paid half that. Ian was dependent on him financially, and Mikey was still sponging off him, even though he was wealthy. On top of this, Billy, his food, his drugs, and his clothing, and much larger expense, his transport to and from the States had really cut in. His parents weren't, his parents didn't give him the money for that. I mean, he got his regular allowance, but there wasn't like extra money thrown in for Mikey. He was taking care of that. Or for uh, Billy, he was taking care of that, which he should have been. Yeah. But still, you know, plane ride to and from America, from Tangier, from Morocco, that's a, I can imagine that's going to be cheap. Even back then it wouldn't be cheap. No. No. Well, that's what I'm saying. I can't imagine it would have been cheap. Yeah. Back then. Yeah. Yeah. The problems at Four Cali Larashi. I I I I am I, I assume I'm saying that wrong. Uh they did not manifest themselves badly until after Billy had left. Though in the winter the kerosene heaters smoked and went out, filling the house with fumes. The villa guard from the Arabian, Arabian Nights over the road came to work for them, but continually demanded more money while stealing all their shirts and towels. <laughs> the flat roof leaked, and the walls of flaking plaster were alive with electricity. Uh-huh. Yeah, Bill would get a shock when he'd push pins into a, into a wall-mounted map of Tangier to indicate the location of the photographs on his photo layout. So the electricity, the wires in the walls weren't insulated. Oh. They just threw the wires in the walls. So the electricity just kind of spanned out from there. So you'd put a push pin with a metal end on it into the wall and you'd get a zap. That'd be kind of fun. Which is something, it feels like that'd be something he'd be into. Yeah. Honestly. Snails crawled down the walls, leaving trails of slime. Green mold formed on their shoes and coat lapels. Problems were compounded by the harassment of the local people who expected them to employ a staff. The children were sneering and hostile, always banging on the door to sell flowers or to ask for cigarettes or money. One beggar woman pounded on the door at 7 in the morning. Rocks and even a spinning top crashed through their skylight window. Stones were thrown at the door every day, and every time they stepped outside, they would be showered with insults and curses. Thanks to Gerodius, who had stolen the $5,000 advance sent to Burroughs by Grove Press, they had no money to move out. Yeah, uh, Gerodius is a piece of shit. Sounds like it. Which is going to be, which, as you could see, has already been a common occurrence, meeting pieces of shit. Well, he's another one. Ian felt the harassment more than Bill. He had originally liked the idea of sharing a house, but quickly became agitated and paranoid, leading to what most what must have been a full-scale paranoid episode. 
Bill was no longer attracted to Ian and was openly flirting with Mikey and other boys because that's what he did when somebody loved him back. He immediately decided to fuck that up. Oh, yeah, definitely. Despite the chaos surrounding him, Burroughs worked tirelessly on Nova Express and its associated cut-up experiments. January 5th, 1964, Burroughs went from Tangier to London to make his first appearance on television. Bill was accompanied by Mikey, who could afford his own airfare. Ian stayed behind to guard the house. Right. Well, if Ian's saying he's going to guard the house, I he's... Ian's not super great, but he's up there with, like, Ginsburg in my book to where he's one of the only ones that kind of comes out of this without looking like a total derelict. So if he's saying he's going to stay home and guard the house from people, then I, I, I would be inclined to believe him. Burroughs was put up in the Devonshire Hotel at 7 Prince Square in Bayswater. Again, so fucking British. An address that occurred in later books as the result of cut-ups and memory. The program, a live talk show, was on the 8th. It consisted of Dan Farson, a celebrated alcoholic, talking to Alexander Troshi, a celebrated junkie, and Burroughs, who at the time wasn't on anything. Huh. Yeah. But the most productive meeting during this trip to London was with Jeff Nuttall, the publisher, yeah, the publisher of a mimeographed literary magazine called My Own Mag. Burroughs told Nuttall that he was interested in the newspaper format with his juxtaposition of columns, pictures, and headlines in which the viewer is constantly absorbing peripheral information and the, adjust- and the adjacent column or the bearing headline or news photographs as each column is read. So it's one of those, you know, you read a newspaper and it's got a column and then you go, Half an inch over, there's another column. Half an inch over, there's another column. Well, he liked the fact that when you were reading a column, you'd also see the other two columns. So there's more information kind of subconsciously bleeding through your peripheral vision. And he believed that all this, you know, giant insects from another galaxy and all that bullshit. Oh, so subliminal messages and shit. Yeah. Jeff was impressed by Burroughs' ideas and invited him to publish his own newspaper as the last two pages of My Own Mag. The first manuscript of The Moving Times reached Jeff in May 1964. A three-column text designed to read like a newspaper, Jeff used it in a special Tangier edition of My Own Mag. Burroughs used his Tangier air ticket to stop off in Paris in order to try and extract money from Gerodius. Gerodius has sold the rights to Henry Miller's Sexus to two different people, and one of them a Chinese publisher named Chow threatened to cause real trouble and put him in jail where he belonged. In order to extricate himself, Gerodius used the $5,000 he owed Burrow to pay him off, thinking Burroughs would be the easier of the two to placate. Probably, because I can imagine that the, the Chinese publisher doesn't get you put in jail. Probably going to kill you. Yeah. 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 When Bill demanded his money, Gerodius just shrugged his shoulders and said, quote, well, you can put me in jail. There was nothing Bill could do. Gerodius was a cheap crook, and there was no money. Bill never forgave him for it. The $5,000 would have enabled him to move out of the house, and Bill could have helped Ian and set him up in some sort of situation to save his sanity and their future relationship. Instead, he had to return empty-handed to Tangier, 
and hang on to the house for several more months until he could get more money from Grove directly this time. Quote, by early spring, February and March 1964, life in that house was hell. Oh, I bet. Well, yeah, when you're living with somebody who you were attracted to and now you're no longer attracted to, and you're constantly hitting on the other person who lives there, and during all this, you have everybody outside your house harassing you. And the house is literally... It's a dung heap. It's a fucking dung heap. Yeah, it's falling apart. It's electrocuting you, and you've got insects inside and yeah the snails and all that i don't think you probably like too much he did i mean he, your clothes he, are moldy i you know what the snails probably didn't bother him too much and the mold i i see him liking the electric shocks i really do i mean if he's not doing that many drugs at this point maybe not as much but i could see him liking getting you know sticking and they had no and money and, to fix the yeah they were, glass. Well, they were yeah they were poor and they didn't have any money for food or anything until well mikey did but he he never wanted to spend his own money he wanted to leech off bell and Bill got his allowance, but that was all going towards other shit. So, Drugs. Yeah. Money finally came through, and on May 6th, 1964, the exhausted couple were last able were at last able to move back into the center of Tangier in the lottery building. Burroughs continued to write, and in the three months he lived in the lottery building, he simultaneously worked on Nova Express and produced thousands of pages of cut-ups. A large number of the three-column pages were given newspaper titles, The Last Post, The Silent Sunday News, The Tangier Survey, The Silver Star, The Cold Spring News, and Moving Times. His main outlet, published in Jeff Nuttall's My Own Mag. Bill and Ian were finally free from harassment, so it came to a surprise when a scruffy-looking shine boy, a young man in his 20s, came up and yelled, Fucking pervert at Bill outside the lottery building. Bill hit him with the heel of his hand and knocked him down, then chased him to a vacant lot where the man hit Bill with a shine box. Bill, quote, gave him some elbows, and he ran off. Throw some bows. He threw one stone, which hit Bill in the leg. Bill saw him the next day, and his face looked all fucked up from all those, you know, sharp elbows. Those uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake pointy elbows. Yeah. Just throw Ian was relieved to leave, but was still very depressed and disturbed by the whole experience. He and Bill had always had an open relationship with no requirement of fidelity. Their ground rules were no jealousy. You do what you want, and I'll do what I want. Ian began an affair with a deaf-mute albino Moroccan who apparently told him a lot about Arab beliefs and ideas precisely because he was a deaf-mute, he knew sign language. Ian was fascinated by the Arab way of life. He learned to speak a little Arabic and had a great experience, and had great respect for the culture, regarding it as superior to his own. But, there's always a but, the affair was filled with friction and difficulties, and there was one unpleasant incident where Ian was forced to suck the cock of, the boyf- of a boyfriend of the deaf-mute when he didn't want to. So... Rape, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. The Arabs, called, the Arabs called him the mad woman. They thought he was insane. Ian took to wandering the countryside around the city, getting fucked by anybody he met. He was clearly going through some sort of breakdown. Burroughs later used the incident in the end of the line section of the exterminator. So, you know, don't... You, you take 
somebody who you love and their horrible experience and you use it for your book. Yeah. I mean, I'm guessing he was fine. Ian was fine with it. Well, if Burroughs asked for permission. Well, they worked on everything together, so I imagine he would have seen it. Burroughs didn't work on hardly anything alone. True. Because even if he was ready, even if he did write the whole thing alone, he had somebody else finish typing it for him because he was a horrible typist and couldn't spell. So he always had he somebody else. He had like a third grade education. Well he, had, well, he had a Harvard education. He just couldn't spell or do math. But he could read and, and, and express himself perfectly fine in the written word. Yes. Their lease ran out on July 15th and Bill and Ian moved. A week later, July 21st, 1964, Burroughs completed Nova Express, the third of the novels composed from his great word hoard left over from The Naked Lunch. The three books are really one long three-volume novel, and the first versions are, the best, are, are best read as such. The Soft Machine, The Ticket That Exploded, Nova Express. The latter being the only volume that Burroughs did not rewrite. It's his most political novel. Nova Express voices opinions that finally reached mass acceptance years later in the ecology movement and the protests against the excess of the banks and the big global corporations. It opened with an angry attack on the establishment, which Bill didn't, Bill didn't use as an analogy. He meant it. He believed in attacking those who held you down. Brian Jisson arrived from Paris. Ian cheered up considerably when Brian arrived and became very involved with the making of The Dream Machine after the travel writer. Leela Hadley offered to put money into it. So now they're getting some... In, uh, Endorsements? Yeah, something like that. Uh, some, some, some backing. But th- to go back on... Uh, the, Bill... I didn't get into it too much, but he was one of those who said, listen, if the banks are holding you down, burn down the banks. Yeah, if, that doesn't make any sense because he was still getting an allowance from yeah, his Yeah, he was parents. never held down at any point in time. So everything that he's like standing against, he never had to really deal with himself. Yeah, he never had to really work for a dollar. I mean... He did. Yeah, he, he had a couple jobs here and there. They never really yeah, lasted, and he's, though. And he's written a lot, and he's getting paid for that. But as far as as far as far being downtrodden and having the man put his, you know, above you, he, he, he never had to worry about any of that. Yeah, so... He was American living abroad. He was fine. But still, to the little people out there, he was telling you, somebody's holding you down, you know, fight back. Fight for yourself. And that's what he was hoping to, to get across. Fight to the power. That's what he wanted to get across to the the young Americans and young Europeans in the 60s was, hey, don't take the authorities' bullshit. That's what these books meant, was don't take the authorities' bullshit. And that's why a lot of people were influenced by him in the late 20th and early 21st century. When, when everybody's looking at him going, he's, you know, he's this revolutionary we know the story we're looking at him going well he didn't have to deal with any of this shit he's just talking out of his ass but for a lot of people he was a huge influence on on the last episode which is next week you're welcome uh the last episode i'm gonna name a lot of artists that looked at him for inspiration and they they themselves were very inspirational so even though we know he's full of shit 
that doesn't mean your your hero can be full of shit as long as you believe what you but what, what they stood for is right then that's for you I mean, he was drunk and high and fucking well, a lot of people were drunk and high it's the 60s most people were drunk it was in, and high in the 50 in the 50s and he killed his baby mama and he's telling people to literally start fights and start riots and well he's telling if if they're holding you down fight back that's what he's telling people now again he never had to deal with any of that so it's kind of you know whatever but if you're somebody who's being held down by you know the man or whatever and you hear you read a book and it says you need to fight back you're not going to worry about what the author who the author is somebody's telling you to fight back if that's an inspiration for you then it's an inspiration for you I suppose, but I mean, this is kind of dumb. Like somebody posted, uh, they shared a link on a a group page for our town, and it was like, sign the petition for schools to not make kids wear masks. So I was like, well, that's kind of stupid. Kids need to wear masks, otherwise they're all going to get sick because kids spread germs faster than adults do. Yeah. So I click on the link. And it says, oh, you can't sign this. This isn't a real thing. <laughs> so I comment on it and I was like, number one, you need to click on a link and read it before you share it. Two, don't share stupid shit. And three, you know, the kids need to wear a mask. Do you want our kids to get sick? And everybody started liking it and laughing at it and hearting it. And I was like, people on our town are stupid. Like, nobody reads or clicks on an article anymore before they they share it. And other people are sharing something that happened in, like, uh, San Francisco about how they're going to be on 24-hour lockdown for three weeks. That happened back in March. And they're just now sharing it. And it's June. Like, it's almost July, people. Why are you now sharing it? It doesn't make any sense. Read before you do stuff. I'm not real sure what that had to do with what we were talking about. Okay. Well, no, it's like I would rather find out about an author and what they stand for before and when I'm reading okay. their work than okay. just yeah. go off and doing it. Yeah. Well, he was very inspirational to a, a, a large amount of artists that were not even, most of them, not even born yet. Well, okay. Back to the story. Ian... Returned to London at the beginning of October, leaving Burroughs in Gibraltar at the Mediterranean Hotel on East Beach near the Stadium Lights Towers that inspired Towers Open Fire, another one of their little movies that they did. Ian saw no future for himself in Tangier, which was clearly an unsuitable environment for him. Bill planned a trip to the States where he had uh, had a writing assignment about St. Louis. Ooh. We love hearing about St. Louis because it's just, you know, that way a little bit. I pointed. This is not a visual medium, so I have to narrate what I do. He didn't want to stay on in Tangier after Ian had left and didn't really know where else to go. Neither London or Paris had any appeal, even though he loved London because it was cheap. He invited Ian to accompany him to the States, but Ian was unsure about it. He knew he would not have a work permit and have to find himself. He would end up finding himself in the same situation in New York that he had been in Tangier totally dependent on Bill. He traveled to London to see Ian before setting off on an open-ended trip to the States. September, 
Playboy magazine had invited Burroughs to revisit St. Louis and write about it. Just before Christmas Eve 1964 in St. Louis, Bill made his way to the Chase Park Plaza Hotel, where we have been to. We didn't stay there, but we were there. Yeah. He went to the lobby newsstand to buy Saint, the St. Louis Globe Democrat and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch to look for items or pictures to paste in his scrapbooks and found plenty of points of intersection. There was a Christmas family reunion at his Aunt Kay's house with all the cousins and relatives, and on December 27th, he and his brother went for a drive around the city, stopping from time to time for Bill to take photographs, the old courthouse, the gateway to the West Arch, still under construction. Hmm. Have uh, you ever seen pictures of it being under construction? Yes, I My do. mom remembers it. Well, your mom's old. She doesn't listen, so that's okay. Yes. Your dad's much older. My dad's so. older, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's pretty neat to see the, the cranes all the way up on top of the, the arch. If you ever get, if you don't, if you've never seen pictures of the arch under construction, look them up. They're, I mean, I don't, the cranes being up there would scare the shit out of me. Being up at the top of the arch was kind of scary, but also very, very neat. So just imagining it. a crane up there. The worst part of going up in the arch is going up in the arch. The elevator to get there is fucking horrible. You're inside an itty-bitty egg. They cram you in there with a bunch of other people. And then you're just swinging the whole fucking time. Because it's going from one track to another track to another track. Because, you know, elevators go up. They don't go up and sideways. And that's what you have to do. We were in there with just us. We were in the no, car. No, when we went up there, it was us. And they they crammed one other family in there. It was like three people in there. So it was all of us. We have a lot of kids. We had five kids with us. And um, another family of like three, two or three people were in there with us. It was crammed. I don't remember that so long ago. Playboy had expected the return of a prodigal son type of story and were horrified by the three-column cut-up piece Burroughs turned in. They rejected it and paid him a $300 kill fee. They didn't kill him. They killed the story. Oh. Well, he still got paid for nothing. You know, 300 bucks. Burroughs' father, Moat, died on January 19th of a heart attack, and Bill and Mort flew to Palm Beach for the funeral. Billy Jr. was unable to get there in time. Laura seemed to be coping. So after a few days, Bill returned to New York. It was a time for reflection. His father had been a strange, somewhat remote man whom Bill had always found it rather difficult to talk to, but he'd always been there to bail him out. And when he got into trouble, it was his parents' hard work that provided the monthly allowance that had permitted him to be a writer, and it was his parents who had brought up his son. He owed them so much and was unable to really thank them for it. I mean, you can always just say, thank you, yeah, and you don't need to pay me any money anymore. Yeah. That probably would have been good enough. They would have been okay with it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate everything you've done for me. Don't don't think that was said. The loss of a large fee from Playboy was made up for by the arrival of Conrad Rooks, who asked Bill to act in Chappaqua, a film he was directing. Rooks wanted to make a film about his experience as a recovering drug addict, taking a sleep cure in the Swiss sanatorium. The New York scene with Ginsburg the New York scenes with Ginsburg were shot in January, which Bill attended. His own scenes were not shot until the first week of April. 
but it included one of Bill's very much enjoyed. It it included one that Bill very much enjoyed. They hired a 1930s black Cadillac, and Bill mowed down Conrad with a Tommy gun loaded with blanks. Nice. Yeah. I mean, at least they're blanks. He didn't have the best um, track record with real bullets, so blanks was probably the best bet. Yeah. Yeah. Despite their best effort, <clears throat> efforts, Brian and his various partners were unable to raise any interest in the dream machine. From the beginning of May, he mostly busied himself working with Burroughs on the third mind, then called Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Your ass. No, that was that was the name of the, the book was oh. Right Where You Are Sitting Now, then then they changed it to the third mind when it was published. Oh. I was like, okay, so your third mind is your ass. No, no, no. <laughs> he worked on it with Burroughs. He worked on the third mind with Burroughs, then called right where you are sitting now. Oh, okay. Okay. My fault. I should have elaborated better on that. It was to be the definitive book of methods concerning cut-ups, fold-ins, tapes, intersection readings, newspaper column formats, grids, and photo collages. Some of the layouts they produced were... Together were the most beautiful collaborations they ever did, usually consisting of a grid of photographs attached. Regrettably, the cost of reproducing illustrations in those days meant that the book would have been formidably expensive. Dick Seaver at Grove toyed with the idea of a deluxe illustrated edition selling at $10. But in the end, Grove Press didn't think there would be enough buyers to justify the publication. The Third Mind was not published until 1978, 13 years later. Oh. Yeah. For Burroughs, this was a difficult time to be in New York as the effects of Harry Anslinger's 32-year reign of terror as commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was still being felt. Penalties for dealing and being in possession of marijuana or opiates were harsh, but it was the attempts of entrapment by the police that worried him. A narcotics agent had asked Herbert Hunky to set Bill up for a bust. Fortunately, Hunky had told Ginsburg about it when he passed briefly through New York at the end of June on his way to the West Coast, asking what he should do. Alan, of course, told Bill. Bill was concerned. He knew that was now unlikely that Hunky would set him up after telling Alan about it. But if they couldn't get him, the narcs would simply get someone else. He was not addicted to anything, just smoking a little pot. But he knew it was not difficult for one of his visitors to stick a needle and wrap it wrap it up the underside of a table with some gum and tell the cops it was there. Bill made arrangements to finish his business with Grove and returned to London. So he's very paranoid that somebody's going to try and set him up and get him thrown in jail. I would be too. He had some shady friends yeah, he, yeah, and he quotations. Had, yeah, yeah, he had a very dark group of underworld criminals that he liked to run around with back in the day. And a lot of them probably weren't super happy that he was able to get out of New York and be famous, and they weren't. So, yeah, I wouldn't put it past most of them to try and get him. Yeah, I mean, and if it was the, you know, narcotics of the, like, FBI-type people. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Yeah. They, they were... They probably promised money or... Yeah, well, and you, and you think you got the FBI, CIA, 
all them back then were fucking ruthless. It's not like they are no, now where every single thing is, you know, obviously every single thing isn't known, but you know more about what people are doing back then. I mean, that they were taking people out, you know, oh, I better not say this on the air. They might come after me. But CIA, FBI, all them, <laughs> they were taking people out left and right. Don't tell my husband I need him. <laughs> so Burroughs got the fuck out of there, returned to London early September 1965. Bill moved into the Hotel Rushmore, where Ian had been living with Bill. That's where Ian had been living while Bill was in New York. Ian moved in with him, but it was not as simple as it might have seemed. Not knowing if Bill was ever going to return to Britain, he found himself a new boyfriend. Take a wild guess what his first name is. Bill. Or Alan. Alan Watson. So there's Alan number five. Yay! Ian was freelancing and installed electrical wiring and lighting in the new Indica bookshop and gallery in September 1965, but was also borrowing money from Bill. Bill recognized that it was entirely his fault that Ian was with someone new. Ian had wanted to join Bill in New York, but Bill hadn't done enough to get him an entry visa. The U.S. Embassy needed proof that he had money, but Bill didn't send him adequate funds, even though he was doing well financially and could have easily afforded it. He sent a few hundred dollars to them. See, he's got money, but they needed substantially more than that, and he just refused to send it, even though he kept begging Ian to come stay with him. He's like, well, I, I can't. You won't do what you need to do to get me to come over. That's Bill. Yeah. He's lazy. Yeah. There had been a fundamental shift in their relationship. When they first got together in 59, Bill was the master. He was in charge. It had been so the whole time they were together. Now, the situation was reversed. Bill desired him, but Ian wasn't interested. Ian may have moved in, but Bill no longer had the upper hand. After a while, Alan Watson also moved into the Rushmore, to a different room. Bill got Ian a job as the sound engineer when the filming of Conrad Rook's Chappaqua moved to Paris. In March 1966, Bill and Ian set off for Paris, where Rooks had booked them into a cheap hotel. Bill made $1,500 for three days of shooting. It was released November 5th, 1967. While in London, Bill continued with the three-column experiments and the scrapbook entries that had occupied him in New York and before that in Tangier. From this material came The Wild Boys, Port of Saints, and The Job. When Burroughs returned from New York, he spent a lot of time with Balk, who was just putting the finishing touches on The Cut-Ups, the movie we had talked about before. The film began life as Gorilla Conditions, a 23-minute silent documentary on the life of Bill and Brian, filmed at the Beat Hotel, Hotel Villa in Tangier, Chelsea in New York, and The Empress in London. Cut-ups opened at Cinephone on Oxford Street, London, in 1966. So it started off as a 20... It was a documentary. It was 23 minutes. It was silent. Okay. And they... It took several it's, years to film? Yeah. It's just more avant... Well, he, he, he it's, it's all stuff that he filmed while they lived at all these different places. And it follows him and Brian um, with their experiments. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, it sounds, sounds boring. boring. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ian's accommodation problems were unexpectedly solved, at least for six months, in April 1966, when he was asked to become the in-house tape operator of a small private recording studio inspired by the reading con- copies of Big Table, an evergreen review borrowed from Barry Miles. <clears throat> Paul McCartney decided to set up an audio equivalent. A monthly budget price record album containing bits of interviews, backstage talk, and studio conversations with musicians recording new albums. Ringo had an apartment that he was not using because so many fans knew the address, so Paul rented it from him. But someone had to be there to operate the tape recorders and set up the mics. Ian was the ideal person. A meeting was held at Miles Flat with Paul... Jane Asher, and Ian. Uh, I'd say Barry Miles in here. Mm-hmm. He's the writer of the doc, of the book that I pulled the majority of my information from. Oh. So he was he was in with the crowd. So this isn't just some dude. He's, Barry Miles knows the group very well. A lot of hash was smoked. Ian explained the principles of floating equations. And uh, Paul asked what the equipment Ian needed. Ian passed him a list. Quote, fine, just get it and send the bill to me. Must be nice. I have a beetle tells you to just get whatever you want and send him the bill. You just fucking get whatever you want and you yeah. send the fucking bill. In the 60s, when, would he been, would that be Wings yet? I don't know. A six, no, the Beatles were still around in the 60s, weren't they? Yeah, that's. I'm not a Beatles fan, so I don't know Beatles lore. You're a Beatles fan, so I, I, I'd ask you. But that you. doesn't mean I know Beatles more. Okay. If you're out there and you want to... Uh, I think e- the Beatles were around in the 60s. You want to e- email me and say, you're a fuckhead. How do you not know when the Beatles broke up? Because I literally don't... I. They do not appeal to me at all. They don't... I was I was geeking out when I saw his name in the book. I was like, holy fuck, you knew Paul McCartney and Ringo and all them. Uh, because they're huge. I mean, they're huge. Everybody knows who they are. Yeah, they were big in the '60s. So yeah, I'm guessing. Yeah, that was probably the drug, the drug years. Yeah. Yeah. That's just us being stupid. I don't know. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there going, "You fucking idiots!" Yeah, they were together because they did. Um... Is that when Sergeant Pepper came out? Yeah. Okay. I am the walrus. Ian and Alan quickly moved into Ringo's rock star apartment. In the end, the two people to make the most out of it were Paul and Bill, who used the state-of-the-art equipment. To the full, conducting a series of stereo experiments masterminded by Ian. Sadly, these appear to have been lost. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Paul told Q Magazine in 1986, quote, I used to sit in the basement in Montauk Square with William Burroughs and a couple of gay guys he knew from Morocco doing little tapes, crazy stuff with guitar and cello. Paul and Bill got on very well. Bill explained all about cut-ups, and there was a lot of talk about pot with Ian at one point accusing Paul of being, quote, just an old pothead. <laughs> I could totally see that. Yeah. Bill was earning very good money by English standards at the time. The notoriety surrounding Naked Lunch was producing royalties. In 1967, for instance, his Grove Press royalties were $44,458.56 after agents' fees, or just under $350,000 today. Which he had to pay, and he had to pay the agent fee in addition to 10% 
to Gerodius. Motherfucker who owed him money, he's still got to pay money to. I'd say fire his ass. Well, he was the publisher. He was the one who was working all his publishing gigs. He could afford to get an apartment. There was a three-room apartment coming up in Anthony Balk's building at Dalmy Court for 750 pounds a year, so he put his name down for it. Quote, This is to be my permanent headquarters. In keeping with his new respectability, Bill had a visiting card print, printed. While he was at, while he was at it, he had one made for Ian, whom he expected to move in with him. The recording studio project clearly not being a long-term arrangement. He was right, and in mid-November, Ian arrived with the tape recorders. This would have been fine, except that Ian insisted on bringing Alan Watson with him, even though the apartment was too small for three people. A three-bedroom apartment was too small for three people. Hmm. That's a three-room apartment. Oh, not three-bedroom. No, three-room probably one bedroom he was hoping that Ian would stay with him in it. It's not going to work out when he brings his boyfriend. Yeah, then that would be too small. Yeah. Bill described it as a typical triangle situation where the younger person brings in someone who he's attracted to and the older man can't protest. It was very painful. Bill was extremely jealous, but there was nothing he could do. He found it very humiliating. Awful position to be in. He knew that he could not bring the subject out into the open because if he did, that would mean someone would have to go. And if Alan left, Ian would leave. He'd rather have Alan there with, he'd rather have Ian there and Alan than not have Ian there. Yeah, that makes sense. Eventually, things seemed to come to a head with Ian Prickly and Bill aloof and standoffish, so Ian told Alan to leave. But Ian would not commit himself to stay with Bill. He was simply asking Alan to leave because the situation had become so impossible. Bill ra- Bill's raised hopes were yet again dashed. Eventually, August 1968, Ian left as well. Aww. I mean, you know how Bill is. He's not going to make this thing, this this whole thing. He's not getting his way. He's not going to make it easy for anybody. No, and I don't feel sorry for the motherfucker. No. Ian, Ian, I I feel kind of bad for Alan because he didn't know what he was getting himself into. And Ian, because, I mean, he's not a kid anymore, but still. He didn't get the unrequited love that he wanted. No. Before moving into Dalmy Court, Alan Ginsberg had been frantically trying to contact him there by telegram and telephone, but with no response. Billy Jr. had been arrested for possession of speed in New York during a raid. Alan had bailed him out, but wanted to know what he should if he should get him a lawyer. Bill cabled Alan to say that he would meet all expenses and hope that Laura Lee had not heard of any of it. The charges were dropped, and it cost Bill $300 for a lawyer. Just as he was writing to Billy to tell him to get out of New York before it happened again, it happened again. <laughs> and Bill had to come up with another $300. He asked Alan to put Billy on the next train to Palm Beach. Bill wanted him to pack up his things in Florida and join him in his new flat in London. Hey, all you book people. Do you love wrestling? Do you hate wrestling? Well, I got the podcast for you. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. Is a podcast Stephanie and I do on all the things we love and hate about wrestling today. Get a viewpoint from people who are strictly fans and live outside the industry. 
So go to audioparfait.com, Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Through December 1966, Ian and Bill carefully checked the proofs for the second revised edition of the soft machine. Many people had found the original Olympia edition hard to read, and Burroughs had revised it extensively for the Grove Press edition in the States, using both the Olympia and Grove editions, plus new material. So pretty much an entirely different fucking book. Bill assembled the final third version, which was published by Calder and Boyers on July 5th, 1968. Publication was delayed because police had recently raided the Indica bookshop and seized Naked Lunch. The book was subsequently returned, covered in grubby fingerprints. No charges were brought, and Calder finally had the courage to publish. Pretty much everything that William S. Burroughs puts out has to be put out under duress from the government because he, it's so obscene and so calling for revolution against you know the authorities. And they, This was a time where they just weren't going to deal with any of that. So they tried to stop it out. But he wasn't doing anything technically illegal, so they couldn't really do a whole lot about it. Yeah. Freedom of speech and everything. So. Yeah. And that whole thing. Yeah. 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 Bill's mother had again been writing to Bill, asking him to try and do something about Billy, who was now taking ephedrine. Ephed- ephedrine? Ephedrine, Ephed- yeah. Yeah, ephedrine. Speed. Right. So many fucking just words. Bill pointed out again that he had room ready and an apartment waiting for him. If the hospital treatment was necessary, it could certainly be provided in London that he had, quote, arranged for a program of activities and studies designed to lead him to into constructive channels, and that he would make every effort to try and arouse Billy's interest in something that might lead to a career. But Bill didn't think that Billy would ever take an interest in anything. Billy himself was resisting all of Bill's efforts to get to come, get him to come to London, remembering the stressful time he had in Tangier with Bill and his boys and not wanting to repeat it. Laura suggested that Bill come to Palm Beach, but Bill was convinced that the Borough of Narcotics was out to get him and had no intention of returning to the United States if he could possibly avoid doing so. So I know my son's in trouble, but I'm not coming because I don't want to go to prison. Don't have any drugs on you and you won't go to prison. He stressed that he wanted to get Billy on a plane to London just as soon as it was feasible and said that he had been putting money aside for the purpose. But eventually he relented, bought a ticket to Miami, leaving on December 27th. Situation in Palm Beach was appalling. Burroughs was strung out on opium at the time. Quote, I thought the habit was small and brought nothing with me to Florida. The habit turned out to be not so small and a period of excruciating withdrawal lasted for months. He had swelling of the groin and neck glands, a high fever, pain, tension. Bill slept in a small back room with sliding windows that had been corroded shut by the salt air. You lived in Florida for a while. You, you had, did you have to deal with the uh, salty air corroding and rusting things around the house? Uh, no, not really, because I lived in the panhandle closer to Alabama. You're far enough away from the ocean where the salt there. I know that's a big thing, like people who live down near the beaches. I saw a thing in Hawaii where people who live in Hawaii, can't, they can't have any like metal outside their house or it just rusts away from all the salt air that's being brought in from the ocean. I didn't know if you had to deal with any of that when you lived down there or not. No. no? I mean, people near the, the beaches probably Well, did. they lived on Palm Beach, so 
I imagine pretty much everything down there is constantly getting hit by salty air. Yeah. yeah. Billy was surly and uncooperative, again, and had left par- uh, parajoric bottles and syringes all over the house, which was in complete disarray. So just the type of shit he was doing when he was in Tangier trying to get Bill in trouble. Laura was already suffering from dementia, asking the same questions over and over, immediately forgetting the answers. Her continuous fretting drove Burroughs crazy. There were no servants and no car, and the house appeared to be haunted with strange knockings and bangings. Then, on New Year's Day, Laura broke her arm, which made life even more difficult. Billy was up on three felony charges, and the case came before Judge Russell McIntosh, a tough judge who automatically handed out the maximum sentence. Bill talked with the DA's office that managed to finagle a deal so they would drop the charges and place Billy on probation on condition he dry out at at Lexington Narcotic Farm, where Bill had spent plenty of time getting himself clean. McIntosh imposed a four-year probation with almost impossible terms. Bill made arrangements to sell the house and put his mother in a small apartment back in St. Louis where his brother could keep an eye on her. Yeah. Pawn him off on... What? Pawn his kid off on his mom. Why not pawn his mom off on his brother? Yeah. Bill accompanied Billy Jr. to Lexington. When he was clean, Bill was sent to... Billy was sent to Green Valley School in Orange City. Florida, where he had to be rehabilitated. Palm Beach House was sold, and Laura was put into a nursing home, St. Louis. Of course, she hated it, because nursing homes, generally, were horrible. When Billy Jr. visited her, she was strapped to her chair, because, quote, she removes her clothing, which is a common thing for somebody with Alzheimer's or dementia to do to take off their clothes. That that's not that's not that strange of a thing for her to be doing if she's suffering from dementia. But it still sucks. Yeah. Billy visited her on occasion and once stole her painkillers. He wrote that she spent the next three years sitting in the same chair, staring vacantly out the window. Mort wrote Bill, quote, Sometimes she recognizes me. Sometimes she doesn't. During the four years she remained alive, four years. She's just kind of thrown away for four years in this fucking place. Burroughs never once went to see her in four fucking years. That's just... From time to time when he was traveling, he would send a postcard... And six months before she died, he sent a Mother's Day card. He remembered, quote, There was a horrible, mushy poem in it. I remember feeling vaguely guilty. What a horrible piece of shit, son. Oh my gosh. <sighs> I'm so glad that my kids are mama's kids, because they... Well, but that's the thing, is he... All he ever talks about is how close he was with his mother, the connection he had with his mother, and then he does this to her. He just doesn't give a shit about her after everything his mom and dad did for him. And that's how he treated that. My mom has told me that is her worst nightmare is that we will up and just put her in a nursing home and forget about her. Your mom will live with us. 
once your dad goes. She's either going to live with us or she's going to live with one of my brothers. Um, whichever one of us she wants to live with, that's who she's going to live with. We're going to. You're her favorite. She'll want to live with you. Well, we're going to leave it up to her. None of none of the three of us are. And fuck, even my oldest brother lives down in Texas. If she wanted to move in with him, that would be her choice, and he would say yes, or the other three of us would go down there and beat the fuck out of him. And if, if one of us said no, the other three would come and beat the fuck out of him, even if it's me. If she wanted to move in with us and I said no, those three would come beat the fuck out of me. That's just how it is. Whoever mom wants to go to, that's where she's going because that's where she wants to be. And if she lives there for a month and wants to move somewhere else, then that's what's going to happen. We're not going to tell her no. It's the person that took care of us, still takes care of us all the time, just as being our mother. So well, I... I would have been like Burroughs in the sense of the, the egg donor. With your so, mom? Yeah, but your, she's not my your situation was different. That's that's for a different podcast some other time. The whole shit that you my went on. My stepmom? I'd, let, I'd move mom. her in with us. Tina? Yeah. Or we'd move into that house. I'm, no, <laughs> I'm not moving that far away. No. No, that's not going to happen. Or we'd, we'd figure out a way to move that house here. Because no. <laughs> I want that house. No. The house is being left to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> anyway, back to our horrible person that we're talking about. Uh, the situation, we'll get back to his mom in a little bit. Uh, the situation with Ian, Alan, and Bill seem to have stabilized. Bill wrote to Brian, quote, Alan Watson continues to cook excellent meals and I have become quite fond of him. I told you the way to Burroughs is through food. Alan was a great cook. And he started cooking for Bill, and that's all Bill needed. Cook for Bill, he's good. As long as the food's good, he's good. That August 1967, they all took karate lessons together. Oh, my God. Something Bill had started in Palm Beach and took to, quote, camping around in those marvelous judo outfits. You okay? She just took a big drink of tea, and now she's trying not to shoot it out of her nose. Just out of the computer or any of the equipment, please. So they just, they take a few martial arts classes oh, and they, they went, just they hang. Went, they went to a bunch of karate classes and then they'd hang around the house in their judo outfits. <laughs> <laughs> they lost interest when Bill badly bruised his wrist attempting to chop an, chop an ironing board in half with the side of his hand. <laughs> There's fucking metal bars in there, you dumbass. <laughs> I can just see him just, just pull. <sighs> oh, 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 <laughs> he's like nope we're done with karate we're done we're not going again we're done with karate but we could still hang out in our judo outfits <laughs> they, probably still, they probably still wore the judo outfits oh my gosh so lame uh, okay now here we get into some of the other bullshit Bill had been involved with Scientology uh. since about 1959 I deliberately didn't cover too much of it because I do not want to talk about Scientology but it was a huge part of his life for quite a while, and it ruined a lot of relationships, so we do have to cover it at least a little bit. He was first introduced to it by Brian Jisson, but it was not until the end, until the mid-60s that he devoted much time to it. He even took a clearing course and graduated as a grade 5 power release. I, that sounds like from, a weird from fetish listen, cum thing. From listening to other podcasts and shit, I, I know more about Scientology than I really like. But you got to do e-meters and do 
clearing courses to try to clear people of all this negative bullshit so they can move up in levels and then to get to another level you have to pay more money and then to get to another level you have to pay it's just a big money grab he was a fucking cult leader that's all l ron hubbard was is a fucking cult leader who found out a way to trick people into giving him money that's all it is and spaghetti monster in the sky the flying spaghetti monster is not a cult you shut your mouth <laughs> i'm a pastafarian god damn it yeah, you wanted our wedding to be. I wanted to wear. I wanted to wear a colander to the to the altar. You wouldn't let me. He was clear number one one six three. Scientology began to show up in Burroughs' texts. It was called Logos in the ticket that exploded. An organization that had quote a system of therapy called clearing. He lost interest when it finally occurred to him that Scientology was all a money grab. In April nineteen sixty nine, he was finally put. In a condition of treason for his critical writing about the organization, quote, they tried to put me in a condition, and I said, well, I'm not going to put up with this. Gold stars and all this I left back in kindergarten. And that was that. Burroughs said later, quote, it was a weird episode, but interesting. I don't regret it. I learned a lot. I do know how to work a lie detector. (laughs) Scientology had alienated him from his greatest love, Ian, and wasted years of his life. Many people were turned off by his conversations, which returned time and again to Scientology. Without question, his period in London was poisoned by his obsession with Scientology. Without a doubt, his life would have been utterly different, happier, more sociable, and more productive if he had never heard of an e-meter. As Burroughs said much later, quote, there's no doubt about it. Scientology is evil and basically ill-intentioned and nasty. There's a hole in the crotch of my pants. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not editing that out, just so you know. I went to the gas station with the hole in the crotch of my pants. <laughs> is it somewhere where you can see it? I don't know, but I just felt it sitting here. I haven't seen it, and I've seen you walk around all day, so I think you're fine. I can I feel it. I'm sorry. I'll tell you something I read. Most people don't give a shit about you because they're too involved in worrying about themselves. So I doubt anybody saw it because probably nobody was even looking for it. I hope so. And that's just the way it is. Okay, so Burroughs finally gave up. Yes, he (laughs) gave up Scientology. Again, there's like 10 years of shit that I don't cover just because it's a bunch of Scientology. He tries to catch L. Ron Hubbard with a tape recorder. And and Scientology come up a little bit later when he tries to, he pulls this tape recorder bullshit and tries to close him down. Um, But we'll get to that in a little bit. When Burroughs was completing his Scientology clearing course in Edinburgh, Ian and Alan had moved out. It was a relief for Bill to find a place empty, but he quickly realized that it was too big for his needs. He inquired after a small he, he inquired for a small smaller flat in the same building, but it was to be many years before one came up. In the middle of August 1968, Bill reported to Brian that Alan Watson had run off to Paris with a rich queen and his opera tapes, and that Ian looked ten years younger because of it. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. However, just when a reunion was possible, Ian found Burroughs impossible to live with because his obsessive interest in Scientology. 
Well, yeah, I could see that being a reason why someone would, would be impossible to live with. Quote, when he fixes me with that operating thetan stare, I just can't stand it. I can't get out of this room fast enough. <laughs> it's when people try to talk to me about any religion, really. It's like, nope, I'm out. I'm gone. Goodbye. Yeah, it's that SpongeBob meme. I'm out of here. Oh, I'm, I'm going to go get me. And he's, he's getting up out of his chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. As far as Ian was concerned, Burroughs was wasting his intelligence and his time on an utterly spurious organization. Burroughs claimed that he was only investigating it, but as far as Ian could see, Burroughs was well and truly hooked, which is what happens. Again, Burroughs doesn't get anything half-assed. He's go, he goes all in. Double or nothing. Mm-hmm. If there was a time when he and Ian could have gotten back together, this was it. But Burroughs was too interested in clearing his engrams in another, like this is th- another Scientology thing. Yeah, it's like a different language. Yeah, it, yeah, and in order to understand most of it, you have to buy the next level so you can understand the level you're at, and then you have to buy into the next level after that to understand the level. That, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fucking pyramid scheme with science fiction bullshit in it. That's all it is. I, we're not going to do a series on L. Ron Hubbard he wrote a lot of books, but I've listened to all about him, and I don't think I'd be able to handle going over it. But at some point, read something, but read the story of Scientology, how it came around. It's it's well, a well, I heard huge about it when fucking, they did that Leah Remini. L- L- yeah, it's story. a huge fucking pyramid scheme. That's all it is. And if you try to take them down, they come after you hard. Yeah, like Tom Cruise. I like Tom Cruise movies. How he is as a person is, you know, whatever. But I like Tom Cruise movies. Look what he did to Katie Holmes. She got out. She's with Jamie Foxx now. Yeah, but... I don't but... know if they're still together or not. But... Anyway. In August 1968, Mo- Ian moved to an un- over-furnished, overpriced flat at 55 Ro- Red Lion Street off Red Lion Square, which he could now afford because he was working on a research project with a large computer company. So, putting that Cambridge mathematics degree to, to good use. Bill and Ian continued to have sporadic sexual relationship right up until the time Bill left for the United States in 1974, even when Bill had other live-in boyfriends. But Ian had no patience for Bill's interest in pseudoscience, neither Scientology nor the other fringe outfits he was drawn to. As Bill said, quote, Ian is one head I can't walk on. And uh, by that he means there was a whole side to Ian that was completely inaccessible to him. Ian featured in most of Bill's books, including The Place of the Dead Roads, where he is Tom. Sounds like he was trying. I think Burroughs would have been great if he would have gone into like psychology or sociology, which was very big back then. And I think it would have drove him fucking crazy. Well, no, because he he was constantly trying to figure people out. Uh, but I think he would have tried to figure himself out, and that would have drove him crazy. Yeah, I, th- I think with him ha- having multiple personalities and he, 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 yeah, I think he'd been too self-deprecating to help anybody. I don't think he would have been able to help anybody. I don't think. I think this is probably the only thing that he could do. Period. Without 
end up going crazy and killing somebody again. Well, it's like he had a firm understanding of psychology with as much as he had to be studied himself for, you know, his I, I mental he, illness. I think he had a rudimentary grasp on it from like, oh, well, I watched a YouTube video, so now I know. That's how I think of Burroughs when it comes to psychology. All these other people went to years and years of school to get their, you know, doctorates and all that. And he, you know, oh, you know, the Karen's sitting on the toilet reading about vaccines and now they don't believe vaccines are good for you. That's, uh, that's what I think. Well, no, I mean, because he's, he's been around psychologists and therapists and so on and so forth since he was very young. Yeah. So he's, he's got quite the understanding of it. I don't know how much, I honestly, I don't know how much he actually understands it. I think I think he puts on more than he than he knows, honestly. Or maybe he's not mentally ill at all. That it's just he's faking it, and that it's mm, changed I, him. I think he's pretty. I think he's mentally ill. Uh, anyway, uh, John Barnett from Esquire wanted a new approach to his magazine coverage of the 1968 Democratic part Democratic Party convention in Chicago. And instead of hiring political commentators, he commissioned Terry Southern. Gene Jennett and William S. Burroughs to cover it for him. Bill accepted this unusual assignment in part because he very much wanted to meet Jennett, one of his favorite writers. Bill flew to Chicago directly from London on Saturday, August 24th, two days before the DNC began. Again, this is the same DNC we talked about in the Harper Lee series with all the riots and everything. Mm -hmm. It was his first time in Chicago since the war. He didn't have a great time in Chicago back then, even though he was an exterminator and he, he liked that. Because he got to kill shit. Yeah. The next day, they all went to Midway Airport to watch the arrival of Eugene McCarthy, where they joined the rest of the press on the flatbed truck reserved for reporters. After another early night, Bill met up with Allen Ginsberg, who, though not holding press credentials, joined their party. Like Bill, he had not previously met Gennett and was delighted to be with him. The next evening... They attended the convention, but it was deadly dull. And after half an hour of Bill taping and Ginsburg quietly chanting a Hindu mantra, they left. <laughs> Everyone except Bill then headed for Lincoln Park, where 3,000 yippies were determined to defy the police and spend the night. Bill went to Oxford Club Bar on Clark Street and missed the first police attacks on the unarmed demonstrators who were tear-gassed, kicked, clubbed indiscriminately until long after midnight. Clouds of tear-gassed finally flushed Bill out of the back of the truck, parked on Clark Street where some hippie fans had taken him for a smoke. The next morning, the Esquire delegates assembled to compose public statements expressing their horror at the events of the previous night. Bill's read, regarding contact of Conduct of police in clearing Lincoln Park of young people assembled there for the purpose of sleeping in violation of a municipal ordinance. The police acted like vicious guard dogs, attacking everyone in sight. I do not, quote, protest. I am not surprised. The police acted in the manner of their species. The point is, why were they not controlled by their handlers? Is there not a municipal ordinance requesting... Requesting that vicious dogs be muzzled and controlled. The dog theme was taken up by both Gennett and Southern in the statements. 
with Gennett pointing out that this was the treatment that blacks had received in America for the past 150 years. That night, several hundred members of the clergy held a service in Lincoln Park beneath a 12-foot cross accompanied by many children. However, at 1240, the police attacked as before, this time using street cleaning trucks to spray the crowd with tear gas. Oh, yeah. You're not even allowed to use tear gas. It's the Geneva Convention. You're not even allowed to use tear gas in war. You're using it on your own people. <sighs> We're not going to get into it. Well, yeah, because... Uh, go off on a fucking tangent. And, and I, it'll bring up current events, and yeah. we try to keep that out of our... The trucks and motorcycle cops' headlights advancing across the park through clouds of orange gas was like the invasion of aliens in a science fiction movie. Many of the crowd, including Burroughs, Gennett, Ginsburg, retreated to the lobby of the Lincoln Hotel where Ginsburg was staying, which was filled with people coughing, tears streaming from their eyes. Gennett said, quote, The hippies are angels. They are too sweet, too gentle. Someday, they will have to learn. The next day, Wednesday, Chicago was virtually, virtually under martial law. The National Guard paroled the str- patrolled the streets with machine guns mounted on the front of their Jeeps. The Hilton Hotel, where bystanders and newsmen had been beaten up indiscriminately by the police, was rigged with guardsmen. Burroughs remarked to Gennett, quote, By God, they're the scruffiest soldiers I've ever seen. To which Gennett replied, quote, I don't know. I prefer the SS after the Second World War. They looked worse. The police, tactic, the police tactic to prevent the Yippies from using Lincoln Park was to lob tear gas in, into the group at regular intervals all day. Just over and over. Just throwing tear gas at them. The city stank of it. The pathetic circus dragged on with the inevitable conclusion of nominating Herbert Humphrey for the DN, for the uh, Democrat candidate for president. They had arrived as observers, but Burroughs and Gennett now addressed two rallies with Bill saying that the system was unworkable and could not be enforced. Quote, police and the behavior of the police, nothing memorable, I'm sure. Then an illegal march left from the band shell led by Burroughs, Gennett, Southern, Ginsburg, and British photographer Michael Cooper. It was supposed to go on for five miles, but to Bill's relief, lines of police and National Guardsmen barred the way before they got more than 300 yards. We're going to march for five miles. God damn it. <laughs> oh, police. And he, he, he's probably turning around going, oh, the police. Oh, he's thinking inside. Fuck, thank God. Because he doesn't want to walk five miles. No, he probably doesn't. The Esquire uh, contingent escaped through the north of the park, but to the south, Carnage ensued. Transmitted live to the world as Mayor Daly shocked troops through tourists and pressmen through plate glass windows, beat people indiscriminately, I'm saying that word a lot, into bloody heaps, and even charged into the Hilton Hotel to beat delegates and reporters. Damn. Yeah, they went fucking crazy. Thursday was spent recovering. They all flew back to New York on Friday, 9.30. Esquire had booked both Bill and Gennett into the Delmonico for a week to write their story and wondered 
just what they were getting when Bill cryptically asked them to supply research material on purple-ass baboons. From our, that's from our last episode. For a cover photo shoot, they posed a male model laying down as if clubbed by police with Burroughs, Southern, and Gennett standing around. Gennett made a scene with an editor objecting that he wanted more money. I would, I would too. Yeah, after going through all that yeah. shit. It was at the Delmonico that Burroughs saw Jack Kerouac for the last time. There had been no contact between them for a decade. Now Kerouac was in New York overnight to appear on the September 3rd, 1968 edition of Firing Line, William F. Buckley's television show, chaperoned by a pair of Greek brother-in-laws. Chaperoned by a pair of his Greek brother-in-law. Kerouac was drinking heavily, slurring his words, and was clearly in no shape to appear on the show. He wanted Burroughs to accompany him to the, stu- to the TV studio, but Bill had no intention of watching Buckley make a fool of Kerouac, telling him, quote, Jack, don't go. You're in no condition. You're drunk out of your mind. It was a disaster. Kerouac tried to ingratiate himself with Buckley by telling him how he, his sister, and his mother had voted Republican all their lives. He stumbled over words and interrupted the other speakers. He insulted Louis Louis Yamblowski, made several vicious remarks about Ginsburg, who did not accompany, who did accompany him to the show and was in the audience. So the one guy who went with him, he just sat there and made fun of him. And he tried to belittle Ed Sanders. The producer of the show finally called Jack a drunken moron and ordered him off the set. Burroughs wasn't surprised at the outcome. Jack had always been heading in that direction. When Lou Reed asked Burroughs why Kerouac had finished up in such bad shape, Bill said he hadn't changed much. Quote, he was always like that. First, there was a young guy sitting in front of a television and a t-shirt drinking beer with his mother. Then there was an older, fatter person sitting in front of the television and a t-shirt drinking beer with his mother. Yeah, he, he was a mama's boy. You can... I believe you can actually see the clip from that show on YouTube. And if it's the clip I'm thinking of, it's pretty bad. It's, I mean, you, you, I mean, you've seen shows where they have guests and it's just a fucking shit show. This is a fucking shit show. I guess, you know, they need to quit letting people drink alcohol when they go on. Well, it was the 60s. I know people still do it today, yeah, he though. Went, but he went there drunk. He was already drunk when he showed up. By October, Bill was deeply into the Wild Boys. Ian was doing well as a computer programmer and was in excellent spirits. Alan Watson was back from Monte Carlo and decided to return to Darlington and run the family business. Ant- Anthony Balk had Anthony Balk and Bill still spent their time running Scientology routines. He finished his book. He finished his book of essays he called Academy Twenty Three, but published as the job, and Wild Boys was going well. He told Brian, quote, The essay book is quite out- outspoken and uncompromising on the women question. Like, what do you think about women? They are a perfect curse. <laughs> the Wild Boys is even more anti-female by total omission. The Wild Boys have nothing to do with women or junk. On August 17th, 
After a flurry of intensive work, Burroughs completed work on the Wild Boys and handed in the manuscript. There was a huge amount of Wild Boys material. In addition to the book itself, it overflowed into the revised Boy Scout manual, later published in Research Magazine. That's how it's Re-slash-Search Magazine. An illustrated book with Malcolm McNeil called Ach, Pook is Here, published as Ah. It's Ah, Pooch is Here, but it's published as Ah, Pook is Here, without the illustration. And Port of Saints, which is really Wild Boys 2, which Burroughs published in the original and in the revised editions. So again, pretty much does it twice. He went to New York in September to work with his editors, staying at the Chelsea Hotel. It was back in London by October 12th. The book stands by itself. There are no carryover of characters from previous books. Quote, it's all simply a personal projection. A prediction? I hope so. Would I consider events similar to the Wild Boys scenario desirable? Yes, desirable to me. He recognized it as a fantasy. Quote, the Wild Boys was pretty removed from any sequence occurring in reality. It was more like a children's story. Peter Pan or something like that. His characters were composites of old boyfriends, friends, and projections of boys only known only from photos and books. Hmm. Quote, I got the Frisco kid I got the Frisco kids section of the Wild Boys from an 1882 photo, which has been lost. And of course, various models can represent the same character. Audrey, Kiki, Allie, Jerry, Pinky, Ginger, Old Sarge are composites of dreams, photos, films, pieces of an old movie. Hmm. <laughs> Burroughs had originally planned a book called Academy 23 intended to combine the Wild Boys material and with the more technical subjects he had been writing about in the Burroughs Academy, the school he went to. Yeah. Burroughs had considered linking it by using some of the interview material produced by French literary journalist Daniel Oder, who was preparing a book of interviews with Burroughs. The two of them discussed the idea in the spring of 1968, but the sheer volume of Wild Boys material caused Burroughs to abandon this plan. Oder's book appeared as Entrenton's Avec, William Burroughs in January 1969, and after parts of it were published in Evergreen Review, it became obvious that the book should be issued in English. Burroughs revived the text of interviews, adding some new material, occasionally illustrating his answers with quotes from text. Sometimes he had already answered the question in his book, and so he inserted an already published material in place of his original reply. He then he called the book The Job, published in 1970. Quote, I've written an actual treatise on revolutionary tactics and weapons, that is, a treatise on tactics a treatise on actual methods and various revolutionary techniques. A great deal of revolutionary techniques I see now are really 19th century tactics. People think in terms of small arms and barricades, in terms of bombing police stations and post offices like the IRA of 1916. What I'm talking about in the job is bringing the revolution to the 20th century, which includes, above all, the use of mass media. That's where the real battle will be fought. <laughs> oh, he has no idea. <laughs> As usual, Burroughs revised the book after publication to bring it up to date. So the 1973 paperback edition includes several new texts, including Playback from Eden to Watergate. Hmm. 
Virtually all of Burroughs' theoretical texts were included, and it's the best guide possible to Burroughs' books and his ideas. His investigation of system of control and development of methods of resisting and breaking systems of control. As a writer, he was particularly concerned about his own chosen tool. He wrote, quote, My basic theory is that the written word was actually a virus that made the spoken word possible. The word has not been recognized as a virus because it has achieved a state of stable symbiosis with the host, though this symbiotic relationship is now breaking down. Very interesting. For one year, Burroughs even exempted himself from the Western calendar, an obvious control system accepted unthinkingly by everyone. He created his own which rather resembled that imposed during the French Revolution. The dream calendar, as he called it, was started on December 23rd, 1969. It's a weird time to start a calendar. Yeah, it is. And each month coincided each month consisted of 23 days based on the Mayan calendar. There were supposed to be 10 months in his year, but the system began with only 8 separate months. And they came around in a slightly different order the second time with a new month. So the first time it goes around, it's got one order. And the second time it comes around, it's got a different order with a new month added in. Yeah, that... Burroughs used the system for a year, dating all manuscripts and letters that way. Unfortunately, the days somehow got miscounted in several other months, making the dates of the letters from that period a little different since the dream calendar date is sometimes as much as five days off. So it's his calendar, but he's not even keeping track of the fucking days. Burroughs called the months Terre Haute, Marie Celeste, Bellevue, Seal Point, Harbor Beach, Nino Pedrito, Sweet Meadows, and Land's End. Wiener Wald was added after Seal Point on the second pass. Yes, he had a month named Wiener Wald. So th- these are just like places, I'm guessing he's Pretty been, much, yeah. Like port places? Uh-huh. Books from, the, books from the period, such as Port of Saints, sometimes refer to the calendar, but without an explanation to the reader, only in the subsequent collection of short stories, Exterminator, is there an explanation of the system as created by one of Burroughs' many multiple personalities, the Colonel. On the early evening, October 21st, 1969, some friends of some friends of John Cooks, who was then living in Cornavaca, came to I'm probably saying that wrong, came to visit, but Bill poured drinks and played as host. He was conscious of a great depression growing on him. He felt terrible, what he described as quote, a terrible fear of death. Suddenly, there was a loud bang, which later turned out to be the sound of a shotgun. A rejected suitor had shot his girlfriend in the bank just off nearby St. James Square. It was not her death that he had an intimation of. He later learned that Kerouac had died in Florida on that day. About 11 a.m. Florida time. Quote, listen, it's better to see a little forward than not. That's the way it goes. Hey guys, 
If you've been trying to grow out that beard, I know it took me a while to grow mine. Let me tell you about the people over at TheBeardStruggle.com. They have the ultimate collection of beard growth and care products for guys who are just starting their beard journey and only have a little bit of stubble, all the way to men with glorious chin locks all the way down to their belly buttons. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 365-day money-back guarantee. And now, if you use my coupon code KevinY15 at checkout, you'll save an additional 15% off your order. So go to thebeardstruggle.com or use the link in our show notes and get everything you need to keep that face fur healthy. And don't forget the code KevinY15. That's K-E-V-I-N-Y-1-5 for 15% off today. Go. Now, Odin demands it. Bill's mother, Laura Lee Burroughs, died October 21st, 1970, at the age of 82. One Burroughs opened the telegram from Mort. He read it and thought, oh, mother's dead, and set it aside. He walked into the other room, and the realization hit him. He stood, stared at himself in the mirror, and his reflection was like a kick in the stomach. Quote, I can't describe the incredible grief I experienced. It's horrible. It's nothing you would experience if you could, avo- if you could avoid it. I just collapsed completely, just sobbed. He lay on his bed for hours until finally he had to say, quote, I can't stand it anymore. I can't, can't, I can't. He later wrote, I still, after years, I still cry to think about her death. And I never went to see her. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, once they're gone, they're gone. So spend time with them while you can. It's just, oh... She, I was so heartbroken when she died. Really? I mean, I'm sure you were sad, but I mean, is anybody, yeah, is anybody supposed to stand here and give you sympathy because she died when you didn't give two shits about her? Honestly? You threw, you sold her home. Threw her in her nursing home. Threw her in her nursing told home. Told her brother to take care of her. And that was it. Send her postcard every once in a while. Dude, wake the fuck up. Using the court transcripts, John Burroughs and Charles Marowitz wrote a play, The Chicago Conspiracy, to be performed at the Open Space Theater on Toting, Totem Court Road. Charles Marowitz wrote, quote, In the role of the perpetuant judge Julius Hoffman, I cast William S. Burroughs, who has been a libertarian as long as he's been a drug addict. As the audience filed in for one-night performance, they were brusquely frisked by actors dressed as American cops. Every indication, indication of contempt for the proceedings or support for the defendant was firmly gaveled down by the judge. New York Times theater, theater critic Irving Wardle supported, uh, reported, quote, One could not ask for a better casting than William Burroughs. Burroughs was so good in his role that he, asked to act, he was asked to act again six months later, this time by David Zane Marowitz, another American playwright living in London. This time, Bill moved up from playing a judge to becoming president of the United States in a play called Flash Gordon and the Angels, <laughs> which opened at the Open Space Theater January 1971. Bill only appeared on a monitor first in a congratulatory, congratulatory public speech to the astronaut, written for public consumption, and then in a nasty private communication telling the astronaut that the mission is terminated and so is he. Before filming, Bill explained to Marowitz that in order to get the character right and true to be an ugly American, he had to drink 
a serious amount of whiskey. It's like, listen, if you want me to really be the uh, nasty president of the United States, I got to be drunk off my ass. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> that, that fits. Burroughs' fascination with Scientology continued, despite his misgivings about Hubbard's attempts to run it as a religious cult. And in November 1971, he booked himself into an advanced course in Edinburgh. John Calder found him lodgings. He was looking for engrams in his past lives and told a friend, quote, Looking into my past, my God, I went back 77,000 years. It was a funny feeling, time washing through me. Whoosh, whoosh. I was experiencing something. That's all I can say. Reincarnation? Well, it's a past life or something in your brain. What's it matter? That makes sense. <laughs> what the fuck? Back in London, he began working with John McMasters, the first ever, quote, clear the man who set up the church of scientology with hubbard and the inventor of the much of much of the scientology technology mcmasters claimed to be had been thrown out of his bed by a massive psychic force entering his bedroom and showed burroughs his bruises to prove it quote if only i had been there with my karate <laughs> <laughs> Quick, let me go put my judo costume on. As long as they're not made out of ironing boards, I'm good. Yeah. Oh my God. With McMasters as a teacher, Burroughs spent hundreds of hours self-auditing with his e-meter. Burroughs finally began to feel skeptical about the whole Scientology technique and belief during a dinner at a Mexican restaurant on Greek Street in Soho with McMasters. Toward the end of the meal, Burroughs gave a guitarist a pound to sing the usually banned version of La Cucaracha. La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha. Now, the, the verse is about marijuana smoking. Burroughs sang along in a cracked tenor. McMasters, who, like Bill, had drunk a considerable amount, leaned over and told Bill conspiratorially, Bill, I ever tell you that in a past incarnation, I was Rudolph Valentino? Burroughs pursed his lips and murmured, Really, John? Most interesting. Bill's respect for McMasters began fading away. It was now it was now that he finally gave up and turned against the organization. He was more than disillusioned. He was indignant. Hubbard was a gangster. He was a great racket, but Bill's friends, like Paul Bowles, wondered why he didn't see that from the start. Burroughs used one of his new weapons in retribution. Ever since the Chicago convention, he had been interested in the idea of cut-ups as a way of altering consciousness and subverting the time-space continuum by recording situations on the street and taking photographs and then playing them back on site, tampering with actual reality and leading, as he put it, into accidents, fires, or removals. He mounted an attack on Scientology's London headquarters at 37 Fitzroy Street in Bloomsbury. Over a period of some weeks, he haunted the premises, taking photographs and making tape recordings. Sure enough, after a couple months, the Scientologists packed their bags and moved to 68 Tottingham Court Road. Hmm. So in his idea, they lived. So what he would do is he would record these secretly. 
And then the next day, he, re- he would just record just shit, just whatever. And then the next day, he'd go back and he'd play them very quietly to where you could almost not hear it. And then the next day, he'd do it again. And then the next day, he'd do it again. And he'd be taking pictures the whole time. And the next day, he'd do it again. And he felt like this was altering reality. Just freaking the people out. Something like that. Was he really altering reality? No. Doubtful. But they moved out. Encouraged by his success, Burroughs selected a new target. The Mocha Bar. Here, Bill had been the victim of, quote, outrageous and unprovoked, discourteous, and poisonous cheesecake. <laughs> I Bur- thought you were going to say gay bashing nope. or some shit. Nope. Fucking cheesecake. <laughs> Burroughs began the operation on August 3rd, 1972, making no secret of his activities. Bill returned half a dozen times to play back the previous day's recordings and to take more photographs. Their business began to fall off, and they kept shorter and shorter hours. On October 30th, 1972, the Mocha Bar closed. Dang. Mm-hmm. Later, the premises reopened as the Queen Snack Bar, a name that gave Bill a certain degree of satisfaction. The incident appeared in The Place of the Dead Roads, written over a decade later. Bill and Ian did a lot of street recordings and playbacks on the streets, not necessarily directed at anyone in particular, just to fuck with people. He, It's pretty neat that the one Scientology place gets shut, you know, closes down and the bar gets closed down, but he goes to that next, that 68 Totem uh, Court Road and tries to do it there too. It doesn't fucking work. So they were probably just getting ready to move and the Mocha Bar, if he got some bad cheesecake, that's probably why they closed down because the food was not good. So it had nothing to do with him. Yeah. But in his head, everything, everything's connected. So whatever I'm doing, I'm, I'm the only one who can work the, the, the puppet string. Yeah. But I mean, that is kind of neat. That's pretty neat. Record people and then play it back for them so that they can hear how ridiculous they sound. Well, and it was just, and most of the time he's just recording the ambient noise that's going on in the restaurant and he's recording it back. Yeah. I mean, it does kind of fuck with your psyche though. Oh yeah. Well, it was like when we were recording this to begin with and we were getting ourselves in our headphones about half a second after we were saying it, it really fucks with your speech pattern. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said with fucking with people with sound, but I don't think it's to the extent of what he thinks it was. Oh no, no, definitely not. So in June 1972, Bill met a young Irish hustler, John Brady, in a pub near Piccadilly Circus and, after a while, invited him to move in. Apparently, he had a bad temper. Bill saw little evidence of it in the early days, but after only a short time, things began to deteriorate. Oh, yeah. Irish have really bad tempers. You just have to, you know, wait and push the right buttons. John became sulky and disagreeable. He began taping tapping cigarette ashes out on the rug and showing signs of hostility. It was evident that he was getting irrational, deeply disturbed, and dangerous. Bill told him, quote, Johnny, why don't you pick up your shit and get out of here? Johnny went to the kitchen and returned with a sharp meat cleaver. Bill was sitting in his typewriter with his hands on the desk. John brought the cleaver down, within an inch of Bill's hand. Burroughs found out later that he had threatened his mother with an axe because he thought she hadn't made enough effort to get him out of jail at some point in Ireland. Yeah, you don't fuck with the Irish. Bill took John to Tangier, where they had a complete reconciliation. 
Back in London, things ran smoothly once again. Burroughs included John in several books. So, you know, it, it was a rough start. But I mean, you you keep the Irish happy. We are your best friend. We're lovely. We are stubborn folk. And when we get pissed off, stay the fuck out of our way. Well, that can be said about damn near any nationality. But the Irish are bad. Italians are the same way. You piss off Italians. I'm German. You piss us off. We just, we hold it down deep inside us for decades until one day we kill six million of one certain type of people. That's how we roll. You do you, we'll do us. Yeah, we want that instant gratification of yeah, fucking see, hurting well, you. Yeah, we, see, we believe the revenge best served cold thing. Even if it's not revenge, even if you're just, it's just genocide see, for I'm no Irish reason, apparently. and German, and I you're, have a tiny bit of Italian in me. You're so not I'm, near as much German or Italian as you are Irish. No, I'm like almost 50% Irish, yeah. and then I have like, you know, maybe almost 30% German. Yeah, I don't know if he's doing that much. All right. Yeah, something like that, but... Though he was late addition to the Pantheon, Bill got his money's worth, and John appeared as private eyes, as a private eye, Clem Snide's assistant in Cities of the Red Knight, and also in the role of a deckhand in Boston in 1702. With the extra cost of John weighing on his finances, Burrow needed to raise money. Brian was in the same situation, and they decided to act on the idea of combining their, combining their archives to sell them. They hired Barry Miles, the writer of the book, the co-founder of the International Times and co-owner of the Indica Bookshop and Gallery in the 60s to describe their pa- to describe their papers for them. He flew to New York to discuss the possibility of selling the archive to Columbia University Butler Rare Book Library, and they explained how they would like the material described in order to assess it and decide on a price. The actual description took many months as Burroughs' papers were in complete mess with one large bundle of several thousand pages tied up in thick string and labeled on the top page and a thick black magic marker bottom of the barrel. (laughs) Nice. It was from this bundle that Miles was able to compile the more or less complete run of numbered pages that made up the only manuscript—the <clears throat> only manuscript of queer. Oh. Mm-hmm. He eventually has to come to terms with this and write it. On September 6, 1972, Brian arrived in Paris to help with the cataloging. Brian stepped in and involved rare book dealer Richard Aaron an American living in Switzerland who sold the archive to Roberto Altman. In August 1973, Bill, Brian, Richard traveled to Vaduz in Liechtenstein, taking the archives with them. Altman checked the archives against Miles' inventory. Then Roberto snapped his fingers. Igor! And out came a man carrying cash. He piled it on the table and counted it out. $60,000 in Swiss francs. The money was put in a briefcase in the correct thriller movie manner, and the next day they drove back through blinding rain to Richard's house outside Geneva. Bill kept his hand on the handle of the briefcase the whole way, even when they stopped to eat. If he would have had handcuffs, he probably would have handcuffed it to his wrist. Probably. That, that's yeah. a lot of money. That's a good amount of money, especially $60,000 back then. Man. 60000 Swiss francs. 
Yeah, I didn't do the uh, the work to find out what that would be now. I was too just ready to be done with it. So. Yeah, I bet. This was a time when Britain was beset with horrible labor problems. After a six-week strike in 1972 by coal miners over pay, Britain's stocks of fuel were getting so low that the government had to impose a three-day a three-day weekend industry and begin selective cuts in electrical supply, with some power cuts lasting as long as nine hours. Bill had had enough of the inconvenience and not being able to watch television finally tipped the balance and made him decide to leave. He was dependent upon electricity for heat. His flat, like most in Britain at that time, did not have central heating. The whole incident showed up a decade later in the Western Lands. Life was miserable. Burroughs had been in London too long. He had not lived in the same city for this long since he was a child. June 1973, he began seriously researching the possibility of moving to Costa Rica. Ooh, Mm -hmm. fancy. Yeah. Get that tan on, get that beach life going. Well, you see him out on the beach with like a suit, tie, and dress shoes on. Right. (laughs) No socks, though. Yeah. (laughs) One of the biggest problems of his life was the situation with John Brady, which had now turned hopeless. John would sleep through the mornings and then go out. In the evening, he would lurk about the the place, disturbing Bill's work. Burroughs complained, quote, It came down to the fact of my giving him some money to get out of the way so I could have some peace, which is a terrible situation when you're paying somebody to go away for a while. John began stealing from him. Bill would say, quote, Well, Johnny, I was going to give you five pounds out of my wallet, but I seem to be short five pounds. And Johnny would just stare back at him insolently, didn't deny it. He just said, well, put yourself in my shoes. What the fuck? When Allen Ginsberg visited London in 1973, the poetry reading for a poetry reading with W.H. Auden, he was shocked by Bill's low spirits. On his return to the States, Ginsburg approached the City College of New York and suggested that they invite Burroughs to teach one of their three-month courses by distinguished writers. They were delighted by the idea and offered Burroughs a, the February to May 1974 curse, course two hours a week at a fee of $7,000. He accepted it at once. He was 60. John Brady was not all pleased by this turn of events. And Bill mollified him with promises of trying to find him a job in New York, explaining that the New York police were traditionally Irish and that he might find employment there. They both knew that Bill had no intention of ever seeing Johnny again. He was just lying. He sold the lease on the apartment to Mrs. Lee Brock, who lived next door, and then returned to New York ready for his new life. John Brady bowed to the inevitable and was calm and reasonable about about losing his income. He disappeared back into the Piccadilly underworld and Burroughs never heard from him again. Well, that's good for Burroughs. Burroughs arrived in New York in February to take up his post as a teacher. Teaching drained all of his energy. He got nothing back from his students. They were not even listening. They sat around reading comic books and chewing gum. He would ask if there were any questions and he'd be met by walls of blank faces. They were just taking the course for credit, and Bill looked like an easy mark who would not flunk them. Quote, I decided then that I did not ever want to teach again. The, problems that it, the problem was that it took Burroughs between six to eight hours to prepare each lecture, and he was doing two lectures a week and two hours in his office for student consultation. Evenings were, evenings were taken up by reading student papers. It was a full-time job. That bullshit about, oh, teaching is just a part-time job. Fuck you. Teaching is a full-time job. It is, even 
at home when yeah. kids are home yeah. well, due to the I virus. Think, I think people are realizing now that teaching's not just, okay, I go do this for a little bit and then I got the summers off. Fuck you. In May 1973, Burroughs had received a letter from 19-year-old fan from Coffeyville, Kansas, enclosing examples of his poetry and asking if he, could, if he could interview him for an article about his early life. Bill had said no to the idea of an article about his early life, but said to call him if he should ever find himself in London. James Garaholtz had sent similar letters to his other hero, Allen Ginsberg. Not long afterwards, along with his two friends, James made the long cross-country trip to visit New York City, James met Allen at his place on East 10th Street. As Garaholtz later put it, quote, he made a well-intentioned but half-hearted and unsuccessful pass at me. James Garaholtz is, he's, he's really the final person to come into this group that will be there until the end. And he's a good, I like James, he's a good guy. He's one of the few good guys in the story. He's, he's, you'll, you'll like James, he's a good guy. Just get that out there now, so so you know. James equals good. James is good. Nine months later, James, newly 21, filled his red and white 1970 Volkswagen minibus with his library, his records, his guitars to set off for the big city. James had no idea that Burroughs was in New York, so when he called Allen Ginsberg, he was astonished when Allen gave him a phone number for the loft in Soho where Burroughs was staying and said, quote, I told him all about you. He's expecting your call. On February 8th, James drove over to Manhattan, knocked on the big metal door, and met Burroughs for the first time. Bill had just turned 60. They got along well. Bill asked him to stay the night, but James declined. However, a few days later, he did, and Burroughs became the first man James had sex with. James took a job at the Gotham Book Mart and saw Bill regularly. With Burroughs' encouragement, James moved into the loft with him. The sex was awkward and strained. James was never physically attracted to Bill. He had no predilection for older men, but says he was not doing it against his will because he already felt love for Bill. For his part, William had a real blockage against making it with James because he was repressed, too shy almost to make a move, and could only do it when he was drunk. This provoked a deep depression. James says that shortly after they met, Bill had upset him greatly by telling him, quote, I don't know if I can still write fiction. This is a result of writer's block caused by teaching. Quote, in that period of four months, I didn't do a damn thing. I had real writer's block. I think it's about the worst thing you can do is teach creative writing. Burroughs reminds me of the Tiger King. <laughs> That's how he got so many husbands and boyfriends and yeah. Yeah. Uh yeah, just getting people who don't want anything to do don't want to marry him to marry him. Yeah, and getting them high and drunk and paying them to to have sex. Yeah, with except him. Burroughs kills people on his own. He doesn't hire other people to go to a forum. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's uh, like this some of this shit sounds familiar. But, and it just hit me. He's the fucking Tiger King. Burroughs had bought, brought an enormous mound of manuscript material with him from London. Jesus Christ. But found that he could not make any headway. Bill's move to New York was not just another address, but new, but a new start. When he left London, he got rid of his e-meter and disposed of his Scientology books. About fucking dying. 
It was now too late for him to properly mend his relationship with Ian or to reconnect with all his old friends who Scientology had alienated. Once in New York, he made little mention of Scientology and played down its importance in his life in conversations with friends and in interviews. So, finally, he's done with that. In New York, after a faltering start, he took on the role of senior figure in the drug culture, the man who had been there, come back, and written about it. He was the elder statesman, a celebrity of sorts. Previously, he had always distanced himself from the beat generation, saying, quote, I don't associate myself with it at all, and never have. Either with their ob- objective or their literary style, I have some close personal friends among the beat movement. They are friends, but not doing the same thing. We don't have the same subject matter or approach, and less and less as time goes on. He now claimed Kerouac as a friend, even though they had been estranged for the last decade of Kerouac's life. He recognized Allen Ginsberg's role in shaping his career and helped him to rehabilitate the beat generation and give it its rightful place, as Allen saw it in the pantheon of American letters. Nice. He's finally grown up at 60. At 60 yeah. <laughs> in Europe, he had been uh, seen as an avant-garde experimenter in literature, as well as in film and audio with his cut-ups and performance pieces. He was also the revolutionary thinker of the job who said, quote, I'm tired of sitting on my ass. I want to get up and stir up some trouble. I want to make trouble for everyone, for all the people in power. He was seen as a mentor to the 60s youth movement, whose thoughts were wildly disseminated by the underground press. Quote, There should be more riots and violence. Young people in the West have been lied to, sold out, and betrayed. Best thing they can do is take place, take the place apart before they are destroyed by nuclear war. He was in opposition to Allen Ginsberg's pacifist approach, telling the underground, telling the underground, quote, The people in power will not disappear voluntarily. Giving flowers to the cops just isn't going to work. This thinking is fostered by the establishment. They like nothing better than love and nonviolence. The only way I like to see cops given flowers is in a flower pot from a high building. Drop, drop, <laughs> drop flower pots on their heads. But revolutionary techniques now belong in the past along with Scientology. He wanted a new start and hopefully a new love. Bill's tenure at City College ended in March, but he was offered $15,000 to teach at the State University of New York at Buffalo. James was concerned that more teaching would destroy Bill's own creative writing and suggested an easier, less time-consuming alternative. Go on the road. James knew a great deal about booking and gigs, having toured with his own rock band before moving. Allen Ginsberg had been touring the college circuit for years, but he was using the Rothschild Agency, whose other clients were all singers and rock and roll bands. By doing it themselves, Bill and James avoided having to give a booker a percentage, and James traveled everywhere with Bill, whereas Alan did all of his traveling alone. Burroughs was astonished by his reception. The audience loved him. They cheered and welcomed him back in New York like the prodigal son. Fans surrounded him for autographs. Unlike his students, these people really wanted to see him. Still, reeling after the first few readings, he was asked by a friend how he was enjoying it all, and he replied, quote, one standing ovation is enough. So he was already getting tired of it. Burroughs had returned. For the next decade, a considerable portion of his income came from readings. Brian had arrived in New York April 2nd to visit Bill to discuss the publication of The Third Mine with their editor, 
Dick Seavers at Viking and to show his new painting to New York galleries. Brian and Bill spent a lot of time together, and Brian accompanied Bill and James to Buffalo for his reading. On October on April 23rd, Brian had dinner with his old friend Nancy and Ted Morgan, whom he knew from Tangier. After the meal, he sat on a sofa covered in pale blue linen to drink coffee. When he got up to go, there was a round blood stain the size of a saucer soaked through the linen. Unable to afford medical treatment in America, he flew back to Paris two days later, where he was diagnosed with cancer of the colon. Mm. After months of painful and useless radiation treatments, he was referred to the cancer unit at the Royal Free Hospital in London. Bill wrote advising him to use an organ accumulator, but it was too late for anything but surgery. His colon and his anus would have to be removed. Brian wrote Burroughs on December 21st, 1974, that, quote, the whole business fairly ironic on several levels since they are going to whip my asshole out from under me, uh, out from under me, so all I can send you are seasonal greetings of bottomless joy. <laughs> Brian returned to Paris from London in April 75, devastated. Sex, as he had known it, was now impossible for him. He was a bottom. His self-esteem, badly damaged, he was deeply depressed, and had made a feeble attempt at suicide at the hospital. Another visitor for Bill that April was Billy. Ooh, son. son. He was then living in South Carolina with Karen, his wife, since 1968, whom Bill was yet to meet. Billy came to New York and stayed with Bill for a week in his loft. Brian had taken one look at Billy and said later, quote, he's a very disturbed adult. Bill agreed. Billy was obviously trouble-prone and very upset and unhappy. It was after that that Billy began to drink very heavily. James gave up the bookshop job and began working full-time as Bill's assistant. New York began to agree with Bill. He began to socialize and entertain visitors at his loft. There was no shortage of people wanting to be Bill's friend. The whole Lower East Side poetry and literary scene welcomed him into their midst, led very much by Allen Ginsberg, who was delighted to have him back in New York. Several new generations of writers had appeared since Bill and Joan had headed off for Texas in 1964. Another source of income was a regular column in Crawdaddy, a glossy rock and roll monthly. Early 1975, Burroughs interviewed Jimmy Page, the guitarist for Led Zeppelin. Their common interest was magic. Ooh. Uh-huh. Oh, there's, yeah, coming up, you're going to see a lot of big names, especially in the next one. Uh, in the next, oh, a lot of big names. Burroughs began work on a new book. As usual, he had no clear idea of how it had come out while on the tip on the Greek Isle of Spetsas with John Brady. He had read James Jones' A Touch of, ja- a Touch of Danger about a private eye on vacation in the Greek islands who gets involved in drug smuggling. Billy used his own trip to the island as the set for a section in Cities of the Red Knight called The Private Asshole. <laughs> he was also thinking about a pirate book. There were originally to be two separate books, but then he saw that they could come together. He was often affected by writer's block, something he had not really encountered before. Sometimes he couldn't work on the book for two or three months at a stretch and would concentrate on something else. He wrote a lot of essays during this period. Try two or three years, motherfucker. (laughs) Uh, Including his regular Time of the Assassins column in Crawdaddy, the book jerked along, stopping, and sometimes not progressing for months. It was a difficult project. It took him 
six years to complete. Oh, okay, so maybe, yeah. The book changed course several times. Oh, well. Couldn't decide on what he wanted to be about. Bill's birthday, February 5th, 1976, he received a telegram from Ian saying, Happy birthday, lots of love, no realization, Ian. The last time they had spoken on the telephone, Ian was working on getting a job as a computer programmer in America. No realization meant that no further progress had been made. A few hours later, Bill received a telegram from Antony Balk saying simply, Ian dead. Ian, who had only recently passed his driving test when <clears throat> had been driving back from the post office, having sent Bill his telegram, won an oncoming car, signal a left turn. Britain drives on the left. The car, instead, turned right. Right into Ian's path. He died in the crash. Oh, no. He died in the car crash, coming back from sending Bill a telegram. Bill literally changed every aspect of his life, including being one of the reasons he dies. You can't put it on Bill that Ian died because of him. But it is kind of weird that even in Ian's death, Bill had something to do with it. That's, yeah, that is, I mean, that's fucked up for Ian because, you know. It's sad because he's one, he's one of the only good people to come out of the whole story. Yeah, and he he took forever to get to America to try to be with Bill, and he's finally over there, well, no, and he's, Bill's he's, not. Well, he's, he's, in, he's in England. They, he turns left. You just told me that he was in America. He was trying to get a computer job in America. Oh, no, he wasn't in America. He was trying to get a job in America so he could come be with Bill in New York. But it wouldn't pan out. That's why he said uh, no resolution or whatever in the, in the message that he sent him. He had passed his driving test. He was on the left. He was getting re- The other person put on their left turn signal. But they turned right. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes more sense yeah. now. Okay. Any, we're confused about a lot of shit. <laughs> Everything's backwards and upside down and orange. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ian and Bill continued their relationship right up until Bill's departure for New York in 1974 and would certainly have gotten back together were it not for Bill's obsession with Scientology. Ian sometimes talked wistfully about Bill, wishing that it had worked out differently, but mostly he was very guarded in his references to his personal life. He often seemed troubled and was often unhappy. Bill gave some photographs of Ian to Dujam Rinpoche, John Gionoro's guru, whose speciality was in contacting the dead. He looked at the pictures of Ian and said, Quote, I've got bad news for you. He's been reborn as an animal. Okay. As she crosses her arms and rolls her eyes. Bill wanted his photographs back because he didn't have copies of them, but De Jom said that he had destroyed them in a purification ceremony. Bill said, quote, thought that was a bit thick. But there's nothing he could do about it. His photographs of Ian were gone, and apparently Ian was an animal. Ian's death precipitated a depression so deep that four months later, James wrote anxiously to Brian, 
quote, I am afraid that William is losing his desire to live. And that is where we will pick it up for part five, for the final episode of William S. Burroughs. Damn. Uh Uh-huh. I told you, just crazy and crazy and crazy all the way up until, you know, the last episode is going to be, you know, crazy too. I'm guessing he dies. (laughs) Yes. William S. Burroughs is no longer alive. Because he's like... William S. Burroughs, it's, it's, yeah, he's in his, yeah. 70s? Well, he's, yeah. He's, uh, it's 1974. He's in his late 60s. And, um... Yeah, so he doesn't have. I mean, he's 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 still got quite a bit of time left. He's not. He's like not dead yet. All the drugs and alcohol he does. But see, that's the thing about the old, the old generation and the, like the old rock and rollers is they apparently took the right drugs because they a lot of them are still alive. Yeah. So yeah. as long I mean, if you made it past twenty seven, you lived for a long time. It was that twenty seven mark of they they got you. They didn't get you then, but you kept going. Yeah. So I made it past twenty-seven. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. All right. Well, that's our longest episode yet. So uh, uh, I don't know how long next episode is going to be. It's going to be another long one. Uh, we thank you all for bearing down and, and joining along. Luckily, this isn't a long, boring story. It's very. It's it's long, but it's. Pretty fucking interesting. It's up and down. There's and a lot of there's a lot of shit. It, it's like it's a twist. Yeah. There's a lot of lulls and he moves here and he moves here and then bang somebody dies <laughs> and then he moves here and he moves here. Oh hey new drugs all right. <laughs> <laughs> and then what the fuck are the Beatles doing here just out of nowhere the fucking Beatles. Hey hey oh wait that's, that's the monkeys. The monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck. Never mind I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, shit okay. Um, Instagrams. Twitters. <laughs> we are at Open A F I N G Book on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Audio Parfait on Twitter and Instagram. I am at E C J B A T on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> the edibles are getting to her. <laughs> uh, I am Young E T A M. Just search for that on both of them. I'll come up. Uh, you can go to our website audioparfait.com you can email us info at audioparfait.com let us literally anything you want to talk about um we we want to hear you know what you guys are reading how you guys liking the show anything we can prove anything um just going on that you want to chat about go to our our patreon patreon.com slash audioparfait if you feel like we deserve a, a donation we appreciate it if not no hard feelings and um I think that's it. Yeah, I'm going to go play with my new loot crate. (laughs) Still waiting on my loot crate to get here for the past, what, three months? Yeah, that they changed (laughs) the shipping date. I'm not going to blame companies for that because there's a lot of shit going on with the virus and all that shit. So I can't get too upset. I've been been very patient. You have. I haven't yelled at you once about it. Because it's not my fault. I just paid for it. It's debatable. (laughs) I get a look. All right. Well, guys... um, Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Wear your fucking masks. Wash your fucking hands. And uh, put on a mint too, because God, your breath stinks. I'm all the way over here. Not you. 
that between now and the time we get to talk to you next, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right, see ya. Bye, guys.